Good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. We're just so pleased to have so many of you here on this cold uh, Sunday morning. Uh, those of you online, a warm welcome as well. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, doubts, questions, everyone is welcome here. Now, it's not uh, particularly earth-shattering news uh, to tell you that the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago found that last year, Americans were the unhappiest that they had been in 50 years, right? Like, that's not a big surprise. And I would guess a similar statistic uh, applies here. The pandemic triggered the great resignation, quiet quitting, and there seems to be a vocational crisis unfolding for many in downtown Toronto. What's my purpose? I wish I had more meaning in my job or my marriage. And if you're in your 20s, you're wondering if you could ever afford a house in our city or find a partner. Life does seem to be getting harder. And that's without even naming the climate emergency or the fact that the Leafs still don't seem to be doing well. We've just started a new preaching series, Joy in Everything, working our way through a letter that St. Paul, an early Christian writer, wrote to a small church in a Greek city called uh, Philippi. And it's what Caleb just read for us. And we're trying to see what relevance this letter holds for us. Last week, Tyler unpacked how Paul, the writer, experienced joy as an emotional response to uh, the grace of God, right? To God's love, to God's mercy freely given to us. And he also talked about how joy and happiness are not the same thing, right? God promises us the first, but not necessarily the second. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to see how Paul finds joy in difficult circumstances and, and what that means for us, the how. So some context. After the resurrection of Jesus, Paul was the architect of the explosive growth of the Christian faith. It's still the largest in the world with a global membership that Twitter and the Chinese Communist Party would die for, with Paul clearly having unparalleled leadership skills and vision. But that's all now imploding on him. He's been imprisoned for his success by Roman authorities, and the letter he's writing in around 60 AD from prison is both joyous and realistic, which is actually a great combo for life if you think about it. But he's in a vocational crisis because now he can't plant churches because he's chained 24 hours a day to a member of the Praetorian Guard. They would take shifts so there was like no privacy, right? Going to the bathroom, eating, sleeping, chained to a guard. It was meant to be demeaning and it worked. But personally, Paul's not falling apart. He's in such a good headspace that the guards are becoming Christians. What's the secret? What we're gonna see from this passage, I think that whether we are able to find joy even in difficult circumstances, depends on what our definition of the purpose of our life is. This very question, what's the purpose of my life, is what the pandemic gave tons of people a chance to ask in lockdown. And I, I often find it helpful to work things through via negativa, right? Like what they're not. So briefly, uh, here are three ways that we can't define the purpose of our life by if we want to have joy. 
in any tangible sense. And then at the end, we'll get to Paul's secret, like what's his definition. So first, your, your definition of your life, it can't be primarily the pursuit of pleasure, right? The uh, pursuit of self-discovery, right? Hedonism. And with hedonism, there's kind of socially unacceptable kinds of hedonism, right? Like excessive drinking, drug taking, but there's also socially accepted kinds, right? Seeking our primary meaning from our family or our friends or our careers, that's socially accepted. We make money so we can have fun or provide for our children so that they will have the opportunities that will let them make money so they can have fun when they're adults. Right, but this is doomed to failure because real life, like it's hard, right? Because cancer's a thing. Because children will make decisions that will break your heart and they will eventually leave home. Infertility's real, it's a thing. And food bank use in our city is skyrocketing. And throughout Paul's writings, he assumes hardship. He assumes suffering. It is way too risky to define your life's purpose by the pursuit of pleasure and self-discovery, even the God-given ones, like family and friends, which are a huge blessing. So two, our definition of the purpose of our lives, it can't be um, moral conformity, right? When we try our best to be good and ethical, you know, the nice guy at the office, right? Making sure your recycling bin has a little bit more recycling than your neighbors, right? or giving generously to charity, basically obeying our culture's ever-changing rules about what it means to be a nice person. And you do this so your life goes well. The problem with this is, of course, obvious. As a, a sinful person, it's utterly unsustainable for me. Probably is for you, too. And these two common strategies, they inevitably clash. And a good example is in the classic movie, Witness. It's about a young Amish woman named Rachel, and she falls in love with the decidedly non-Amish police officer, John Book. And Rachel's father, Eli, warns her that this romance is forbidden, and that the elders of the church will have her punished. And he adds that she's acting like a child. I will be the judge of that, Rachel retorts. No, says Eli fiercely. They will be the judge of that, and so will I if you shame me. You shame yourself, Rachel replies, shaken but proud as she walks away. So you got the person of moral conformity, right? The dad, Eli, and he's saying, I'm not going to do what I want, but I'm going to do what the community says I should do, right? That's moral conformity. But the person choosing hedonism and self-discovery, well, that's Rachel, the daughter. And what she's saying is Rachel saying, I'm the only one who can decide what's right or wrong for me, and I'm going to find my purpose in whatever brings me pleasure. Right? And, and of course they clash, of course. Now, real people with real lives we just don't neatly fall into these two categories, right? We've got personalities, we've got family histories that predispose us to choose one over the other, or we'll try a different strategies at different times in our life. And the classic example of this is the midlife crisis, right? The first half of your life, you did moral conformity, you worked hard at school, you got the job, you got the house, and then you decide to try the other strategy, hedonism, throw it all away and uh, go for self-discovery and pleasure. 
right? Classic. But with the mix and match of approaches that most of us fall into, what tends to unite all of us here is our desire to at least finish and complete things in however long our lives are. Like from the small finishing the project at work, right? To seeing our children grown and flown. We search for purpose in accomplishing things. And this is a good and a holy desire. This is very good. But how does it lead us towards Paul's secret sauce for joy in the midst of the struggles of life? Well, when the writer Tolkien had been working on his epic, The Lord of the Rings, for some time, he got really serious writer's block. And the thought of not finishing his life's work, it just filled him with terror. And so to help himself, he wrote a short story, and it's called Leaf by Niggle. There's a painter called Niggle, who's clearly Tolkien, and who wants to paint one last great painting, a picture of a magnificent tree. And so he lays out a canvas so vast that he needs a ladder to climb it to paint it. Niggle knew he was close to death, but he told himself, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey. And so he painted, but he never got much done for two reasons. One, he was the kind of painter who was better at painting leaves than trees. And second, because he was so kind-hearted and he was always getting interrupted by his neighbors who, who needed help. And so no matter how hard he worked, nothing more than a leaf ended up on his canvas. Nigel eventually nears death and he bursts into tears. Oh dear, he begins to weep. It's not even finished. After death, Nigel is on a train going towards the mountains of the afterlife. And during, the verse, uh, during that journey, he hears two voices. The first voice is the dark voice of justice, who tells Nigel that he didn't accomplish much in life. And the second voice, it's gentle, but it's not soft. It's the voice of mercy. And mercy tells Nigel that he's chosen to sacrifice for other people. And as Nigel then gets to the outskirts of the heavenly country, something catches his eye and he runs towards it. And there it is gleaming, and I quote, Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Nigel had so often felt or guessed, and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the magnificent tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide, it is a gift, he exclaimed. The world before his death, like they had totally forgotten Niggle and his little leaf painting, right? Nobody remembered. But in this new country, the really real world, the tree is finished. It's beautiful. We're all Niggle. Regardless of our age and stage, we want to accomplish things, and we are going to largely find ourselves incapable of doing so. Finishing completing cannot be our definition of the purpose of our life. It is a gift, cried Niggle. Last week, Tyler explained that Paul experienced joy as the emotional reaction to God's grace, to God's gifts that God gives us. We want to be successful rather than forgotten. We want
want to have an impact, but none of us is getting out of here alive. And if this is all there is, and eventually all will be burned up in the death of the sun, it's all going to be forgotten. Unless, unless, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. There is only one kind of life that will stand up to anything. Only one kind of life that can deliver joy when the career implodes or the cancer spreads or the loneliness is unremitting. When the tragedies of life go after your bottom line, how are you going to survive? For to me, living is Christ, dying is gain. This is Paul's secret to joy even in the midst of real life. It means looking at the world through the eyes of Jesus, his assessment of what matters, his priorities. It means dying to the changing moral stances of our culture, dying to the fleeting pleasures of your 20s or your 60s. Notice that in his prison cell, Paul did not write to live as comfort, to live as approval, to live as power. Because he'd already experienced how the love and mercy found in Jesus is more durable, is greater than any joy of those fleeting comforts. Do you want approval? I do. Jesus died for us, despite knowing exactly what we're actually like. All the approval we ever want or try to get from our kids or our careers, I'm no different. But it can be found in Jesus. To live is Christ. Do you want to conform? Do you want control? I do. But God in Christ holds the whole universe in his hands. And only when we trust in God's power can we admit our lack of control without actually losing our minds. To live is Christ. Dying is gain. Paul ends our section of Philippians today with some really practical advice for how to hold on to joy. And he doesn't want us to have our heads in the sand about a reality, right? And Paul is really clear that we're in a battle if we want to live this kind of life. Don't be intimidated by opponents, Paul warns. And live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the sake of the gospel. Paul was chained to a Roman guard, and Roman legions were famous for marching side by side. It's what made them such an unstoppable military force. And if we want to hold on to joy... We need to work side by side together here in our St. Paul's community. Because the world, it's going to do everything in its power to get us to conform to our culture. And there's lots of good stuff in our culture, don't get me wrong. But it's going to try to convince us that sports are more important for our children than their spiritual lives. I know what it's like. I've got kids. It's going to try to convince us that the overriding purpose of friendship and marriage is for personal pleasure. And that money brings security and hope. We need an ordered life, side by side, where we encourage each other in our rhythm of life. Those five spiritual practices that have sustained our followers of Jesus for centuries around the world. We encourage and challenge each other side by side in connect groups, 
and through serving together in different ministries, as so many of you are doing. It's wonderful. And let me take this moment to thank you for your financial generosity. I'm grateful to tell you, and relieved, <laughs> that we did make our year-end budget, which is a very tangible way of striving side by side in the heart of our city for the sake of other people. Thank you. I'm not a big fan of putting uh, passages of scripture on coffee mugs or phone cases, but this might be my exception. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Like put this on your screensaver, okay? <laughs> or your daily alert. And with Jesus as our focus, joy comes from the glimpses that we're given of the small leaf that our lives are painting, a leaf of that great tree in the really real world, a world that one day I pray that I will see with you when my death, like Paul's death, is trampled under Jesus' feet. Thanks be to God. Amen.